right, everybody. If you're in the back, come on up. If you're in the front, have a seat. Have a seat. So what we try to do, what we try to do here at H2O is each week have one person share their story because that inspires us to know that God is really among us and is doing very cool things. And so I'm going to yield the microphone to my buddy Haywood to share his story with us. Thank you. My name's Haywood, and I have shared here before. This will be a kind of a brief rehash of that. Um, I lived most all my life as agnostic, but I was always kind of seeking and doing a lot of uh, studying and reading, uh, mostly secular books or other religious books, the non-Christian books. And a lot of that was helpful, um, but it never really answered all the questions or it never really, never really solidified anything in my life. Um, and it never helped me really, or it helped, but it didn't answer all the questions about who I was as a man. And uh, I guess I didn't really know that I was seeking that particular thing until I found Christianity. And when I started reading the Bible and other Christian books, all those pieces started falling together, and it all started to make sense. And it answered questions I had over 40 years that I could never get answered other, other ways. Um, and it gave me a definition, a biblical definition of my roles as a man. So now, wait, I skipped the worst part. In addition to seeking, I was also sinning. My whole life was kind of wrought with that, drinking, smoking, other such things, um, which, of course, none of that was helpful, um, and it left me mostly hurt and empty. Um, but now, the definition, uh, and now I saw that I was a beloved son of God, number one, and I was a warrior, I was a worker provider, and I was a leader. I'm not saying I was, you know, immediately great at those things, but at least I had a definition to follow. I had a template. And having those and starting to frame my life around those biblical principles has been a great blessing to me. It's been very helpful. Um, the other thing that was very helpful was realizing that God loves wild places. He loves wild experiences, and he loves dangerous manhood. And these are things I always felt deep down my whole life, but it's always been a bit of a struggle because society has always kind of told me to repress that. I work in healthcare, and uh, you know, you got to be sweet and nice, and uh, sometimes I don't want to be sweet and nice. Um, <laughs> so they also... You know, recently, they've become, they started to tell us that these things are actually toxic. Uh, we, John and I actually saw a lady wearing a shirt that said something vulgar about toxic masculinity. And I thought that was really sad. I prayed for that lady. Um, the American Psychological Association just released a paper saying that traditional masculinity is pathological, that being it causes disease. Uh, so it, there seems to be kind of a cultural war here um, so I, I believe that masculinity, it can be toxic when it's not driven by God, but when it is driven by God, it's, it's a very, very strong, powerful um, force for good in the world. Um, so then getting on to Courageous, Courageous uh, was a group that uh, started here that is a men's ministry, and the saying is, as iron sharpens iron, well, one good man can sharpen another good man, and that's what we're doing uh, on a monthly basis. The men are meeting, and it's been uh, extremely helpful to fellowship with these men and uh, do our man activities and uh, be around 
men who are also trying to live out and shape that biblical manhood. So, um, so I would encourage everyone here to go, and it's uh, going to be next Saturday. What's the date, John? 20, 26th. January 26th. Oh, it's right there. So that's my story. To clarify, you ladies are not invited. Sorry. <laughs> Very important statistic here. The total number of lost limbs so far in our men's ministry remains at zero. We, are, we have a man activity each time we do this, and, um, and so we have everyone sign a disclaimer, so, but we still haven't lost any limbs. So anyway, January 26th. I hope that was clear what he said about toxic uh, masculinity. You know, the world's a mess. I don't know if you know that or not. And the world does not need better plans. The world needs better men. Not men exclusively, but we're just talking about men. The world needs better men. And I believe that when men flourish, marriages flourish. And when men flourish, families flourish. When men flourish, churches flourish. And when men flourish, their world flourishes too. And that's what we are all about there with Courageous. So I uh, took some time here this past week. Every now and then I... Uh, take some time and, and reflect on some good things that have happened in the past. And I was reading over some cards that people had written me. Um, this first one is from my wife, so I'm not going to read that. Um, I want you to listen to this. Thank you for all you've done in pursuit of our friendship. Your loving encouragement helped me, helped bring me back from the brink. Bring me back from the brink. This is from a husband and wife. Uh, he writes, I once read somewhere that a teacher has the ability to spark a fire in his or her students of curiosity, knowledge, and wisdom. God has placed you in our lives as a teacher that does just that and as a pastor who genuinely cares for the lives of the sheep. So you guys are sheep. And then I love what she wrote. This is, this is just interesting to me. Um, you're an amazing teacher. Not that part. Uh, my growth as a Christian has been a wonderfully painful experience, thanks to you. <laughs> Just like, what am I supposed to do with that? And um, even, even when you, you, you were, use words such as tribal, something is always clear. I understand. It makes me think. It makes me cry. It makes me pray. It makes me change. And uh, so I was, I was just reflecting... Reflecting on these things that people have written, and there's some common denominators uh, about each of those, is that each of these people has gone through tremendous struggle. I mean, we're talking about marriages that are about to break apart, identities that are just torn between Christ and, and the world. So conflict, great, great difficulty. And some of you right now, you're nodding your heads. You get what I'm saying there. The second thing I noticed is that there was a big breakthrough moment in their lives through a redemptive relationship, that God uses people, and sometimes that person was me in there, and sometimes it just wasn't, but there was a redemptive relationship, a human being that made all the difference in the world, and the third thing is that that relationship, that redemptive relationship was tested severely. 
Am I going to trust? Am I going to be suspicious? What am I going to do? This morning, I want to uh, speak part two on Jesus's dream for this church. And we began in part one last week by talking about the church as the body of Christ, the very hands and feet of Jesus. What a great calling for us to really embrace that, to be the body of Christ to one another and to the world. This morning, I want to speak about the glue that holds the body together, that is love and unity. I want to speak about love and unity. For those of you that are new here, um, there's something really broken in a lot of Christianity. There's too much mask wearing, you know? There's too much creation of pedestals where we elevate people, especially pastors, into an expectation of, of perfection, which is just not true. And so at H2O, we have an antidote for that, and it's called humble transparency. So we try to just be really honest. That's my little introduction to saying, my wife and I got in a fight this last week. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right time to woo or not. <laughs> Maybe, unless that was my wife. Uh, <laughs> she won, I mean, so. So here we are, you know, I think I'm right. She thinks she's right. I'm hurt, she's hurt, I'm mad, she's mad. Like, there's so much tension in that moment. Our kids are like, what's going on? You guys never fight. And, and a day goes by, and, and what kind of descends on me is this question. Do you, do you want to be right? And the answer is yes. <laughs> That's the point. I want to be right. Do you want to be right, or do you want to have a relationship? It's like, oh, I know what I want. I want a relationship with my wife. So we got together and had a second talk, and in contrast to the first talk, I, I just listened and, and heard her heart and heard her feelings and found out that, yes, indeed, I was the one that was entirely wrong and the culprit that caused it. This question is going to come back up because as I speak on love and unity, that's going to be the issue almost all the time. Do you want to be right or do you want to have a relationship? That's really the question. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel of John. What do you guys know about John? Shout it out. What do you know about John? Love one another. Great verse. What else? The favorite, disciple. the favorite disciple. He said, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. What else? The very first disciple. Very, very first disciple. And he wrote the most famous verse in the entire Bible. I don't know if he was ever tempted with pride. I know I would have been. It's like, hey, uh, you ever read uh, John 3.16? Uh, <laughs> just saying, you know. I wrote that. Um, Tim Tebow has popularized this, hasn't he? Yeah. Very nice, Lynn. Uh, God so loved the world. Uh, by the way, he got engaged. So he's off the market. I apologize. There may need to be some comfort given up here to Lynn, perhaps. <laughs> so John 3:16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish. Interesting word, isn't it? Perish. Maybe you think, well, that means go to hell, and I think ultimately it does, but perish. What food perishes? Something that is healthy and nourishing disintegrates. It, it, it falls apart. Humanity, the way we're supposed to be, without Jesus in our lives, we go downhill. Things break apart, and God 
so loved us that he gave his only son for that. It's the greatest news on the planet. It is the gospel is what H2O all, is all about. And we want every single person here to be crystal clear on this. Something happened at the cross of Christ whereby God invited us. No matter what we've done, no matter how we've sinned in the past, he said, come, come to Christ, come to the cross, lay your sins down, let me do something new in you. It's what we're all about. We're going to look at John 17 this morning. It is the true Lord's Prayer. I know if you open up your Bible, it says Matthew 6 is the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, our Father who art in heaven, but that's not the Lord praying, is it? That's what we're supposed to pray. John 17 is Jesus praying to the Father. You can learn a lot about someone by how they pray, right? Like you can really see what moves on their, on their heart, and we're going to see what moves on Jesus' heart here this morning. little backstory. They're at the Last Supper. Jesus is there. He announces to his disciples. He says with clarity that he is leaving, that he's going to die. From there, they're going to end up later in the evening at the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is going to yield his life freshly to God the Father in absolute trust and love and say, not my will be done, but yours. We're in between these two events. Jesus and his disciples are walking toward the garden. They're walking together on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus just looks up and opens his mouth in a very conversational prayer. And he says this, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. The hour of atonement when God resolves the sins of the world. The hour of Satan's defeat where Satan's clutch on our lives, where we live without God and independently from God, Satan's clutch on our lives is broken in that hour. The hour to come that was prophesied in the Old Testament so that anyone can read the Bible and know that God told us what was going to happen at the cross. The hour was upon him that was agreed upon before God made the world. Before God made the world, the Father and the Son agreed together that the Son would come into a broken, sinful world to die on the cross. That's why he's referred to as the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. God was not caught off guard. He was not surprised by your sin. He saw it coming in eternity past. The hour has come, he said. He continues, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. I want to look at this word glorify here for a minute. It basically means magnify, to take something that is incredible and awesome and to magnify it so we can really see how awesome it is. It's football season. It's playoff season. So by analogy, it's some wide receiver going up and making this ridiculous catch and tiptoeing the sidelines as he goes out of bounds. And they do the replay, and they do the slow-mo, and you go, that was freaking awesome. 
So the word glorify here, what's interesting is that when Jesus says glorify your son, do you know what event he's referring to? He's referring to the cross. Elsewhere in John, Jesus said the cross is what glorifies him. In other words, when we slow it down into a replay and we look at Jesus, the son of God, loving us enough to give up his very life blood, it's like, that's freaking awesome. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. There's this dynamic going on between God the Father, God the Son, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, the Trinity models relationships for us. The way the Father and the Son relate to one another is supposed to inform us and teach us how to be human beings that have excellent relationships. It's not like the Father is saying, hey, I want worship. And Jesus is saying, well, I want worship. So we got a problem. Instead, it's the Father and the Son seeking to glorify each other. Once you look at one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, it's Philippians 2.5. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's just slow down and make sure everyone gets this. We are commanded to think like Christ thinks. Does everyone see that? Everyone with me? We are commanded to think like Jesus Christ in our relationships with one another. So I want everyone to close your eyes for a minute. I still see eyes. Close those eyes. I want you to think of that person that bugs you. Don't point. Don't elbow them. I want you to think of that person. Maybe that's a relative. Maybe that's someone in this church. Maybe it's someone that you just can't understand their behavior and they're driving you crazy. Maybe it's someone in your life group. Maybe it's your spouse. I want you to think about that for a minute. Crystallize that image. Who is that person? Don't say it out loud. Do not say my name right now. Open your eyes. Verse 6. Although... He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Can you picture that image in your mind? All of creation, every single human being, now seeing that Jesus really is who he says he is and saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. And what does the text say here? To the glory of God the Father. It's like, the, it's like God the Father says, Jesus, you're so excellent, I want everyone to worship you. And Jesus says, I want all praise to go back to you. The foundation of today's talk about unity is being willing to die to ourself with people that we may not naturally be drawn to. Let's go back to the disciples walking. Verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all that you have given him. 
We, we said this last week. If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, you are a gift from the Father to the Son. You're a gift. God the Father gave you to Jesus, his Son. I don't care how we struggle with shame and guilt and, and thinking lowly of ourselves. We're a gift. And when we begin to think of ourselves as a gift, I do not believe that our minds get puffed up with pride. I do believe the opposite, that we begin to live like a gift. And we begin to gift other people with the gift that we've gotten from God. So you're a gift. The Father gave you to the Son before the creation of the world, and then your moment came, and salvation became real to you. Verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And I just want you to notice the word only, the only true God. This is not exactly PC, is it? This is not exactly politically correct to say there's only one God or for, for us to say Jesus is the only way to that God. And the world will call this simply believing what Jesus says, arrogant and hateful. And we just have to get beyond that because the world needs us to live boldly and courageously. It may sound strange for you to humbly say to someone, it is true that Jesus is the only way. And I'd love for you to believe in him like I have believed in him. But that's what love does. That's what love does. Verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was the work that the Father gave to the Son? Why did Jesus come to earth? Help me here. Uh, uh, uh. To take the hit, to die for the sins of the world. It's one. What else? It, say that again. Increase discipleship. So, great, perfect. So, I want you to see this. A lot of times we think that Jesus came to die on the cross, which he did. But he came to start a movement. And if I could be kind of candid, I think our reaction to, to that actually is that's a loser idea. I mean, that night, all of the disciples fall asleep while Jesus is praying, right? This is not going well. They got into an argument at the Last Supper about which one of them was the greatest. And now Jesus is going to hand off his movement to them? This is a horrible, horrible idea, right? Isn't the church horrible? It's a beautiful and brilliant idea. And some of us, if we've been de-churched, which, which many of us are, need to come out of a hypercritical group of people who are down on the church and say, you know what? I'm going to start being the church. Because when we start loving each other the way Jesus has taught us to, it's real and it's evident. It's not a loser strategy. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? That is us. Jesus prayed for us. That's crazy. Verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be 
in us. Are you serious? Jesus prayed that we would be perfectly united with one another. That's crazy. Why did he do that? Why, why would that be so powerful? Well, he tells us in the very next thing he says. So that, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. God's master plan for saving humanity is us and every other group of us's that say, let's live out this perfect unity. Okay, so here's why I want to give this talk. Here's why I want to talk to you about love and unity. Number one, because Jesus' call to love and unity invites us to a new and a better way of living that is the gospel. So back to the whole marital discussion, discussion, um, the argument that we had, uh, what motivated me ultimately was the gospel. What motivated me ultimately was knowing that somebody died for me in my worst state. And this causes me to move toward people when I don't want to move toward people, to forgive people when I don't want to forgive people. Which is easier? Talk about people or talk to people? You don't need to answer that. Which is easier when you hear something about somebody? Is it easier to believe the best or to believe the worst? Which is easier to distance yourself from someone who's hurt you or to move toward that person? The gospel teaches us to move toward people, to believe the best of people, and to fight for the unity of relationships. So please don't misinterpret this teaching as being about you and your friends. It is about you and your friends, but it's more so about you and the person you don't naturally connect with. That's where the love and unity that Christ has in his mind is actually tested. This is what we unite up around. This is what we need to unite around. Many Christians unite around doctrine. Doctrinal unity is what shapes the unity of many churches. We believe the same thing, so let's hang out together. That's a great thing. There's a higher unity, which is relational unity. We, let's love each other. And so that's a higher unity. But a higher unity even still is gospel unity because that forces us, even when we don't get along, to then move toward one another. Here's the second thing I want to say here, why I want to talk about this is because, because unity makes us depend on Jesus. We say this every week, I may say this every week for the rest of my life, we need to be done with the form of Christianity that says, try harder to do good. God is not interested in you doing good. God is not interested in you trying hard. God is interested in you surrendering and let Jesus live his life through you. We should have much more amens on that point, just so you know. Thank you. We've got to be done with that. So I had the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with someone, and this illustration came to my mind as I was sharing with them, is that salvation is a free gift. And so it's like the greatest iPhone ever. What number are we at right now? Ten? Wow, I'm way behind. So uh, instead, we have iPhone infinity. Trumps them all. Greatest iPhone ever. And salvation is a free gift. What do you need to do? You need to receive it. Now, here's where a lot of people get stuck. They understand what Christianity is. Like, man, I need to start loving people. 
I need to stop judging people. I need to turn away from sin. I, I don't know that I can do that. I don't want to be a hypocrite. This iPhone Infinity comes with all of these apps that are unbelievable. Like there's a Love God app. There's a Love People. There's a Turn From Sin app. There's a Show Compassion app. And this phone will buzz. Let me just tell you. You take salvation, you begin to walk it out, and the next day it's like the phone buzzed like, ooh, oh, I was about to turn away from God and the Holy Spirit. The phone buzzed and he helps me. It's Christ in me that enables me. It's never about trying to be good. This forces me because, honestly, when I have a relational conflict, I don't want to move toward that person. I want to pout. I want to take my grudge and put it on the stove and just let it simmer for a while. Or I can just like get cold. I'm sending a message. I'm just going to be distant because you have failed me. That's me and my flesh. And the reason I don't do that very often, though sometimes do, is because Jesus is my Lord and I want to do what pleases him. And when I have these little conflicts, these moments of tension, it's an issue of lordship. Jesus is saying the phone is buzzing. It's like, stop buzzing. And the phone is buzzing. And I realize I need Jesus. I need him. If I'm ever going to love anyone in this world, I can't do it without his spirit. So it teaches me to depend on Jesus. Look at verse 22. This is really cool. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. This word glory, it's a really rich, rich word, the word glory. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's the word kabod, which means the weightiness of, of God. Can you go to the next image, please? There we go. Kabod, it means weight. It's like God in his glory is like, it's weighty, weighty stuff. The Greek, in the Greek language, is where this doxa, which is where we, brightness. And so the glory of God on us is the weighty brightness of God. And did you see what the scripture said just a minute ago? Can we go back to verse 22? Jesus is praying and he says, the glory that you have given me, the weighty brightness that you've put on me, Lord, I have given to them. So we talked about you being a gift, right? That was encouraging. And the way the New Testament puts this is that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the dwelling place of God. The weighty brightness is upon you. And as we live lives of surrender, something beautiful comes out of us that we have no right to really experience. And why is this important? Jesus goes on in his prayer and he says that they may be one, even as we are one. It's natural to believe the best or the worst. It's natural to separate. It's natural to blow up or go silent. It's supernatural to love someone by the glory of God within you to hold on to love and unity, as Jesus said. Verse 23 I and them and you and me, that they may be, what's the word? Perfectly one. Perfectly one. And why is this important? He tells us. So that the world may know that you've sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Here's the last thing I want to say. 
Nothing is more powerful. Nothing is a more powerful sign than love and unity. You may not believe that, but that's what Jesus said. He said, this sign of love and unity will prove to the world. Think about how people unite. People that are young usually hang out with what kind of people? Young. Old people. That is, people older than me. Usually hang out with what kind of people? Old people. Republicans hang out with Republicans. Democrats hang out with Democrats. Pro-choice people hang out with pro-choice people. Pro-life people hang out with pro-life people. And everything in America, especially right now, Martin Luther King holiday coming up here, and instead of us coming together in any sense of unity, there's this complete polarization. Martin Luther King, the great man, his name being used as a racial slur. And the one place where we can come together and manifest that there's some meaning and some beauty to our lives and some purpose behind it all is in the church. Heartfelt unity with people who are not like you is what the gospel creates. It is the miraculous sign that tells an unbelieving world that God is among us. And the bottom line is that there's people around you in your life right now. There's people who are around you, whether that's in class with you or who live in the apartment complex or your neighbors or who work with you that have many of the same fears and hurts and disappointments that you have. But they've not felt the love of Christ. They've not heard the love of God. They've not seen and experienced what we are experiencing here as we live out our love and unity. God's method and his Modus operandi is love and unity in relationships. The greatest sign, the greatest unity. All right, we get a, uh, to witness a baptism here today. Like I said, this is exciting. Uh, the ultimate demonstration of unity. Unity with the Father because of the work of the Son. We're going to be baptizing uh, Sydney here in just a few minutes. Will you stand with us now as we move into worship?